Good morning, church. Yes, it is December, and it is, according to a very familiar Christmas carol, the most wonderful time of the year. And yet when we hear that song, or when we are reminded that it's the most wonderful time of the year, the question that we ask ourselves is, is it? Is it the most wonderful time of the year? Well, with the new coronavirus variant detected in pockets around the globe, and uh, with restrictions uh, on travel and social gatherings possibly tightened again, one can say that this season is definitely not the most wonderful time of the year. It is rather a most uncertain time of the year. And yet we know that there have been more gloomy and uncertain Christmas seasons in history. So I did a research and I was reminded Pearl Harbor was attacked on December of 1941 and it killed 2,000 people that day. And that day came to be known as the Day of Infamy, coined by the President Roosevelt. Around this time too, in 1984, 3,000 in India did not wake up from their sleep. Why? Because a gas leak from the Union Carbide plant poisoned them in their sleep. And the gas leak uh, from that plant also injured around 200,000 people. And closer to our times was the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, which we all remember. It happened on Boxing Day of 2004. The waves swept and killed more than 230,000 people in more than a dozen countries. It was considered the worst natural disaster to date. Now, all these incidents must have left a magnitude of uncertainty to all the people who were affected. Perhaps you, you have your own story to tell too. I mean, I do. I lost my mother so suddenly during one Christmas break from school, and I will never forget the pain. I will never forget the heart-wrenching experience of going home, seeing an empty bed, going to the kitchen, seeing cookwares hanging silently, laundry unfinished because mom is no more. And what filled the void was an air of uncertainty. At a time, supposedly the most wonderful time of the year. And yet the Christmas season must proclaim certainty in the midst of uncertainty. It must. Why? Because our loving God always addresses humanity's hopes and fears. And that is why the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, has the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Humanity's hopes, humanity's fears, all this time, they converge and are finally addressed in Bethlehem on the night of Jesus' birth. So Matthew records for us in chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So who found Mary to be with child? Well, it was her fiancé Joseph to whom Mary had been engaged to. I don't know, maybe the telltale signs of pregnancy gave it away, the morning sickness or the bump getting bigger, whatever gave it away, the discovery must have dashed hopes of the husband-to-be, Joseph. Dashed hopes of being the only one captivated by her love. Dashed hopes of, of having a holy, unadulterated union. Dashed hopes of, you name it, Joseph was cheated and disappointed. And yet, we were told that he did not want to shame Mary. He would just quietly return her to her parents, give her a certificate of divorce, and move on to heal from shattered hopes. That was the quiet man's plan to deal with his dashed hopes. Did you notice that Joseph was very quiet? I mean, scripture never recorded him speaking at all. But because God always addresses our hopes and our fears, verse 20 tells us, but as he considered these things, that means his plans, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We now know from Scripture that Joseph was in fact fearful, fearful of proceeding with the marriage, perhaps he feared that his betrothed had already been married and he would what? He would be committing adultery. Or he feared repercussions. Uh, people would, you know, count back the number of months and look at him with raised eyebrows. He would become a laughing stock. He would become a byword. And then several years down the road, Joseph might also face inheritance issues. But how did God address all his fears? Well, in the nick of time, we were told that God sent a messenger, a message through a dream, assuring Joseph not to be afraid, telling him that no, there was no immorality, no, there wasn't any cheating, there wasn't any unholiness, because all this was all part of the holy plan of God. Quote, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, end of quote. Now, nothing much is told uh, us of Mary in all this, at least not in the Gospel of Matthew, but we know, however, from the Gospel writer Luke, that Mary, Mary faced certain uncertainties. I mean, her response to the angel Gabriel was, how will this be since I am a virgin? That was her reply when she was told that she is with child. Now we can imagine the fear she faced. 
I mean, what man would believe a pregnant woman's innocence? That she had an apparition and the unexplainable uh, incident would explain everything? I mean, what parents or which parents would accept a pregnant daughter's explanation that nothing really happened? Mary must have been filled with uncertainty about her future. Would she be dragged to the town square and stoned on charges of adultery? Would she be shipped back to her parents, filled with shame? And then if the marriage did continue, did proceed, the wedding did proceed, will she then have an illegitimate child? And you know, the problems that come with illegitimacy. I was born at, as an illegitimate child because my parents never officially got married. And each time I took out my birth certificate, it was very embarrassing because father's name, blank. Mary was filled, could have been filled with a lot of uncertainty. Would the wedding materialize? And if it did, would Joseph despise her for the rest of her life? real fears, and yet God took care of everything. Hopes and fears were addressed. Joseph's fears were relieved by the dream, by the instruction. He then complied with the angel's instruction. He took Mary as his wife. Mary's fears were allayed. Her trust paid off. Because she had said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So the hopes and fears of this couple, at least, were personally addressed. But you know what? So will ours and the rest of humanity on a bigger scale. Because there's something important. There's an important information about this child. The angel tells Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, what is the greatest blessing that one can ever hope for? What is the greatest blessing that you can ever hope for? Now, we better let scripture tell us so because when we ask that question, we are always misguided with our answers. What is the greatest blessing that one can ever hope for? It is the blessing of being forgiven, isn't it? It's the blessing of being counted as righteous in God's sight. David said that himself, quoted, in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and following, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so the greatest blessing that one can ever hope for is the blessing of being forgiven. It is the blessing of the Lord's forgiveness. That hope, my friends, is finally at reached because the son born of Mary is to be called Jesus, meaning deliverer, rescuer, savior. This child will save his people 
from their sin. And in this gospel, the gospel writer Matthew, he provides many evidence and many support to show you that Jesus is indeed the deliverer, the savior, the rescuer. So we would read that when a paralytic was brought to Jesus, the Lord assured the man. He tells him, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And that was why some of the scribes who were around, they charged Jesus with blasphemy. But yet Jesus maintained that he has authority to forgive sins. And what is the proof? Well, the evidence was that the paralytic was healed instantly. When Jesus tells him, take your mat, pick up your mat and go home. Well, the man just did that. For all these years, he had to be carried around. For all these years, he had to be carried around on the mat. Now he was, he was immobile for many years. Now he was able to just roll up his mat, pick it up and go home. Just like that. The miraculous healing was proof that Jesus forgave the man's sins. So number one, the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Secondly, because Jesus was born to save sinners, we would read that he spent a lot of time with tax collectors and sinners. What did he do? Well, he ate with them. See, the typical Jew would not eat with sinners because eating with somebody meant that you are establishing a good relationship with that person. They would have nothing of that. But Jesus spent his time eating with tax collectors, which were considered traitors and sinners, and other sinners. He ate with them. It's not a very cool thing to do in the eyes of the Pharisees. Yet Jesus did that still because, number two, he came not to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners. That was his mission. He eyes out the sinners who needed rescue and forgiveness. Thirdly, when the Pharisees still refused to welcome Jesus, but instead attributed his miracles to the devil, well, that was it. Jesus warned them of the unforgivable sin, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the rejection of Jesus and the rejection of his saving acts. It is the unforgivable sin because there it can be no forgiveness found outside of Jesus. Jesus claims that he is the exclusive Savior. That's another evidence that he did come to rescue. And last, lastly, during his final meal with his disciples, what did Jesus do? Well, he sealed the deal with a covenant drink, with wine symbolizing his blood that would be poured out for forgiveness. So many evidences alone in the Gospel of Matthew to show you, to show us that Jesus is indeed as his name calls him to be. He is deliverer, he is rescuer, he is savior. The son born of Mary will save his people from sin. 
because he has authority to forgive sins. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He is the exclusive savior. Outside of him, there is no other savior. And he sealed the covenant that guarantees forgiveness. And so the greatest blessing that one can ever hope for, the blessing of forgiveness, is found in Jesus. His birth gives this hope that someone finally will save people from their sins. You know, each time I celebrate my birthday or each time the new year ushers in, is ushered in, I tell myself that I was once young and foolish, but now I am old and, and still foolish. And by that, I do not mean that when I was young, I did a lot of foolish things. Folly didn't, wasn't limited to the mischief that I've done, like flickering the rubber band against, towards the teacher or putting pebbles inside the muffler of a parked car, sometimes water, and waiting for the driver to come and start the engine so that the pebbles are blown off. Folly is just a mild word to describe sin. The sins that I have done in my younger days, the sins that are now even too shameful to talk about, whenever I remind myself of those sins, I heave a sigh of relief that the Lord has forgiven my lawless deeds. There is coming comfort that he has covered my sins, that he will never count my sins against me. This is the great hope that the Christmas season brings to mind for us who believe in Jesus. And for those who have yet to give their lives to Jesus, this season is an offer of that hope. The greatest blessing that one can ever hope for, which is forgiveness. Because our hopes all these years are met and addressed in the birth of the Savior. But what about our fears? Well, the birth of the Savior confronts our fears as well. The angel said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Savior's birth was a double fulfillment or a repeat fulfillment of a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. See, when Isaiah spoke of a virgin, uh, giving birth to a son during his time, it was a sign that was given to the faithless King Ahaz. See, at that time, there was uncertainty and fear in the household of, of Ahaz. There was uncertainty and fear uh, amongst the people of Judah. Why? Because of a looming threat coming from Syria. The Syrian king had joined forces with the northern kingdom and they were planning to attack Judah. So Ahaz 
was now presented an opportunity, an opportunity to turn fear into faith, to turn fear into faith by trusting the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And the word is that Syria is not going to last. The coalition is not going to last. Give it a few decades and they were all toppled. And that Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah just needs to stay put. They just need to trust in God. Why? Because God is with them. But sadly, Ahaz would rather put his trust in foreign power, not in divine power. He would rather put all his chips, place all his bets on Assyria instead on God. And in doing so, in his refusal to trust God, in his uh, desire instead to place all his bets with Assyria, he was sleeping with the enemy. And so because of his disobedience and refusal to put his trust in God, the prophecy, which could have been a comforting assurance that God is with them and will protect them, it now became a sign of judgment for Ahaz. The birth of the son is going to confirm that Judah will in the end be taken away to exile. And that the promise that God is with us will only be experienced by the faithful remnant. So if Jesus' birth is a repeat fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, or if it's the ultimate fulfillment, what message does it carry for us today? Well, firstly, it tells us that God is finally fulfilling his promise of putting, of installing a faithful king on David's throne. And with this king, God is with us because this king is the son of God. And so the issue or rather the call that is now presented, the call that is issued is this. With Jesus as king, the Son of God asking, will you now turn fear into faith? Will you, for example, heed Jesus' call not to worry because he is your king? His exhortation to seek first God's rule and his righteousness and all things that you need will be provided by your heavenly Father. Will you quit putting trust in the work of your hands, in the wealth that you have amassed and collected, and instead put your trust in God? Will you choose not to be fearful of man, those who may cancel you, those who may deride you, those who may mock you, those who may cross you out of their good books, but instead choose to give in to the fear of the Lord? Will you choose not to give in to the fear of the man who can kill the body, but instead choose to be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul? And thankfully, because of what Jesus has done for that, it's not going to happen 
to us. And one more. Will you choose to surrender your fear of the future's uncertainty? And by that, I mean your earthly future. Will you choose to surrender that fear? Why? Because Jesus promised to be with us to the end of the age. God is with us in Jesus. Will you turn your fear into faith? In God's Son. The birth of the Savior addresses our fears indeed. It issues a call to turn our fear over to faith. And yet, there's another way His birth deals with our fears it warns us against a kind of fear that ramps up rejection and distrust towards God in the same way that King Ahaz responded, his fear that made him refuse God. And one example of that is from the verse that has just read a while ago, from Herod, the fear of Herod. I call that the Herodian fear. You know, Herod, he dreaded the news of the birth of the king of the Jews. Why? Because he was so struck with insecurity that his throne would be taken away from him. And so he plots, he schemes, he deceives in the background to find out where Mary's child was born. And when he failed to do so, he orders the mass slaughter of young children in the hope that the prophesied king, the king of the Jews, gets massacred in the process. That, my friends, is Herodian fear. The fear of giving up power. The fear of losing one's position to God's rule. This fear led to the rejection of Jesus. And yet this fear was not only unique to uh, Herod. We see the same fear amongst the Pharisees and the scribes. You can call it pharisaical fear. You know, the Pharisees, they were envious that Jesus' celebrity status was, uh, was, was going off the charts. They were uh, fearful that their own popularity among the people was kind of waning. And the, they feared that uh, they were losing they're hearers because everybody was flocking to Jesus. Now, mind you, not everything that the Pharisees were teaching were wrong. Jesus himself did say to his disciples, obey them. Obey them. It's just that do not follow them because they do not practice what they preach. Jesus tells them everything they do is done for men to see. In other words, they are celebrity Pharisees. Celebrity Pharisees who fear losing fans. And so with pharisaical fear, what they did was that they were always looking suspiciously at Jesus. Today, people with pharisaical fear 
will always ignore Jesus' words that no student is greater than the master. They always want to be greater than Jesus. They always want to be more popular than Jesus. Pharisaical fear. And that fear led the Pharisees to reject Jesus, to dismiss his teachings, to slander him, and in the end, to plot his death. And then there's one other kind of fear. I call it pretentious fear. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, told the parable of the talents, of, of, of a, a parable of servants given, given different amounts of talents to work while their master was away on a trip. Everybody did good work, except for one servant who merely buried the talent. And when his master came back, the, re the, the servant reasoned and he said, Well, master, you are a hard man. You harvest where you have not sown and you gathered where you have uh, not done some, some scattering of seeds. And he says, so I was afraid. I was afraid. And so I went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here, he says, here it. Here is what belongs to you, he tells the master. And so you read that parable, you read that account, and you ask yourself, is he afraid or isn't he afraid? Is he fearful or is he not fearful? Well, I call that pretentious fear, fake fear. And fake fear makes one do what he wants to do at the disguise, in the disguise of fearing God. Fake fear also leads one to render to the Lord just enough, not more. Not less. Pretentious fear. And so, my friends, the declaration that God is with us can go either direction. To King Ahaz, it was a sign of judgment because he refused to believe that God is with them. But yet to Isaiah and to the faithful remnant, it is an assurance of God's presence that though they will go through the exile, a day will come for their return. For us today, it presents an opportunity, an opportunity to turn over our daily fears and uncertainties to faith in the Son who promises to never forsake us or leave us until he returns to welcome us in to his kingdom. And yet, the promise that God is with us presents a warning for us not to sideline Jesus, not to reject him, but to firmly trust him in all things. So God with us leads us to ask, will you turn fear into faith? Or will your fear lead to distrust and rejection? Yes, we live in uncertain times. It will always be uncertain, my friends, until God's kingdom comes in its fullness. But we can find certainty 
We can find hope. We can find relief from fear. Why? Because a son is born. You know, when I was young, we had a neighbor across the road who became dad's uh, good friend. He was a migrant from China and he would go to dad occasionally whenever he needed some translation help. He would come over every day after closing his shop and, and, and have a few bottles of beer with dad. But then cancer ravaged his body. And during his last days, the beer sessions, they became less. He spoke less. He became despondent. He struggled swallowing. And then one day, he phoned dad. He phoned dad and I overheard him. He was in high spirits. And by that, I do not mean beer. He was in high spirits. He was so happy to share the news with my dad that his wife finally gave birth to a son. And he phoned dad for some name suggestions. Now, I could not recall what name dad suggested or gave, but what I do recall was the neighbor's joy, his excitement, his hopefulness. Why? Because in his dying days, his wife finally bore him a son. And the birth of his son for a moment made him forget his pain. It made him forget his impending death. There was a moment of hope that that boy will carry his name. A moment of hope that that boy will grow up and provide for the family. How much more the birth of God's son, who would be the eternal king, the savior, the one that fulfills the promise that God is with us. How much more joy, hopefulness, relief it brings because all our hopes, all our fears are now finally met in the birth of Jesus, our Savior, whose birth is the most wonderful birthday celebration of all time. May hope, joy, and peace fill your hearts this season because a son is born. Let us pray. We give thanks, Father, for the beautiful gift of your son, born during this season that we celebrate. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. And He fulfills your promise that God is with us. May we respond in a way that honors you to the truth that Jesus is Savior, He is Lord, and He comes to dwell with us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.